here's what we're going to do today. I don't want to get us snowed in, but I've got an important message. We're going to continue in chapter 2. So this is discerning the will of God, part 2. And uh, we're looking at Acts chapter 1 again. And instead of, we really went over 9 through 11. So we're just looking at 12 through 26. And I didn't get a chance last week to unpack it uh, as much as I'd like. Hey, is it all right if we flip those house lights back on? Only because sometimes I can't handle that glare right there and I want to make sure I get through the sermon without having a headache. And I love seeing your beautiful faces. There we go. It's coming back on now. So if you have your Bible, open up to Acts chapter 2 and and let's pray. Father God, we just come to you right now. And we ask that as we look to your word, you would guide us and teach us. God, we cannot understand your word without the help of the Holy Spirit. So give us spiritual eyes today that we would understand the text we're looking at. And I pray that the mind of Christ would be at work today in all of those who have called on you as their Savior. I pray that you would give us a deep understanding into God's word through the illumination of the Holy Spirit. And I pray for those who do not know you today, that your Holy Spirit would open their eyes spiritually today and open their hearts to you. And that today in hearing your word, that the Holy Spirit would draw them in and they would surrender their lives to you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, just a recap real quick of last week, what we decided. We talked about how uh, it's very important to understand that some things in Acts or some things in the Bible are descriptive and they're not prescriptive. But all scriptures, God breathed and authority. It's the authority uh, in our lives or should be. So what I mean by descriptive and prescriptive is, is, is that a passage is descriptive if it is simply describing something that happened. And while a passage is prescriptive, it's specifically teaching that something should happen. So it's important for us as lovers of God's word, students of God's word, to know the difference. So really, simply put, is it a description or is it a command? Is this passage describing something that happened in in history or is it prescribing something that should happen? And last week I said there's a lot. There's a lot of people who would say that the book of Acts is all just descriptive. It's not because there's a lot of things that happen in the book of Acts that are taught all throughout the epistle. So there is a lot of prescriptive in the book of Acts, and we're going to get into that as we unpack Acts in the next, well, I would say next few weeks, next few months, next year. (laughs) We talked about how when you're making a decision, you make decisions in view of God's plan of redemption. So the primary reason this story is in the Bible is not to help us learn how to find God's will. It's in the Bible because it informs us about how God sovereignly worked to advance his mission. And that reveals something to us about finding his will. And it isn't hard. Finding his will isn't as hard as some of you might think. It's pretty obvious. We need to make our decisions in view of God's unfolding plan of redemption. So we we said, ask yourself these questions whenever you're facing a decision. What are the immediate ramifications for the gospel? The words of Jesus, the words the disciples heard with their own ears would become the foundation on which the church was built. And, and they knew that by filling this position, they were acknowledging and valuing the need for an eyewitness testimony to the gospel after Jesus had left. Another question we told you to ask is, what are the eternal ramifications for the gospel? So it was imperative to fill Judas' spot. Jesus told the 12 that they would have this unique role in the coming uh, kingdom of God, and they had this important work to do. And so we, we could glean from that, that every decision we make matters. Our choices can have eternal impact. And the disciples had to distinguish between God's revealed, revealed will and God's concealed will. Ugh. 
tongue twister today. (laughs) Be confident in pursuing God's revealed will, those things that are going to be found in the Bible. You need to value the Bible and you need to know it. They understood that they needed to fill Judas's office. They didn't know the name of the guy who was supposed to step into that role. So they were going to seek God's wisdom and God's counsel. So you start with God's revealed will. That's the Bible. You need to know the Bible. And then you need to trust the Bible as your authority. And we talked about that last week. And then, of course, you need to do what the Bible says, right? And then look for God's concealed will through the lens of God's revealed will, okay? The Bible is a truth, the truth that we can trust. Make it a priority in your life because God's concealed will needs to be discerned on the basis of his revealed will. When you are looking to make decisions in life, I hope that this is your first source that you go to. Because the Bible is black and white about so many things in our life. I've told you as a pastor, I have people come in my office all the time, and they're very concerned about finding God's will for their life. Or they just want the pastor to bless whatever decision they've already made. So it really depends on the person's heart. If they're really wanting God's will in their life, in their marriage, in their family, all of these things, they have to make this the priority. And that's, that's usually what we have to figure out and det- determine. Is this the leading factor when it comes to guiding, guidance in your life? Are you looking to God's word? Because I, I can tell you this right now, a lot of people sometimes will want a blessing. They want to maybe leave their spouse because they're tired and they're fed up with certain things. They're wanting to leave and, and they're just wanting a blessing. Is it God's will that I leave? Well, God's will is never going to con- contradict his word. So you've got to start right here. How much do you love God's word? How much do you know God's word? And what priority does God's words take in your place? And so that's kind of what we talked about last week. And I'm going to be real honest. I absolutely love this second part of chapter one because I believe it sets up the entire book. Such an interesting period from after the ascension of Jesus and before the coming of the Holy Spirit. And what this particular passage does is it gives the disciples a dividing line to say that the earthly presence of Jesus... That's his earthly physical presence, present ministry was over. He wouldn't return to the earth until he came back, he comes back in glory. And now he's ascended to heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father. And here's the kicker, he's gone to heaven to perform what he has promised, saying that when he had gone to heaven, he would send his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was the fulfillment of his word. Now think about this. Any work of God or move of God is a fulfillment of his word. I'm going to say that again. Think about any work of God or any move of God is a fulfillment of his word. We talked about this last week. Peter, all throughout this chapter and the next says, The word said this and his word will be fulfilled. The book of Acts is the fulfillment of God's promise to his people to meet them in power. That's a fulfillment of his word. We're about to see this in in Acts 2 when people say, man, what is going on? What is this? Peter's going to respond by saying, this is the word of God which is being fulfilled. When When you came to a place of surrender in your life and you surrendered your life to Jesus, you made him Lord of your life, that was a fulfillment of God's word. Romans 10, 13 says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. When we said yes to Jesus, God was honoring his word. It was a fulfillment of his word. I just watched on Facebook uh, a Assemblies of God Church in Jacksonville, Florida. They've been in the 21 days of prayer and fasting, and they posted a miracle that just took place. Somebody who was born blind, 
She had been blind all her life. She came to one of the prayer meetings on their midweek prayer meetings. And I don't even think somebody prayed for healing for her. She just received healing. And, and she could see all of a sudden. She's like in her 20s. And her whole life, she, she's, never, she's never been able to see. And they bring her up on stage. And it was just the most amazing testimony. I was just sobbing, watching it, thanking Jesus. And this, this girl gets healed and she's giving praise and testimony to Jesus. That's a fulfillment of God's word. That's a fulfillment of God's word. Mark 16, 17 through 18 says this, and these signs will accompany those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick and they will recover. What happened in Jacksonville, Florida is God keeping his word. When God says it'll happen, it'll happen. One of my all-time favorite Bible passages is Acts 2.17. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. I'm glad God keeps his word. Love that his word says on all people. That's everyone everyone, not a select few, but to all who want it, God keeps his word. So when we have people respond to the call of salvation, that's a fulfillment of God's word. When miracles happen, that's God honoring his word. And I want you to have that in the background as we approach. Now, we're going to look, I'll unpack it a little bit because I didn't get to do this last week. Acts chapter 1, verse 12 through 14, it says, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. They returned to Jerusalem. Oftentimes we'll read that and We'll just read right past it and not think anything of it. They returned to Jerusalem, and they did that because it, they were obeying what Jesus had told them to do. Simple obedience, but it's, it's notable. It's worth taking note. Jesus told them to return to Jerusalem and wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. He said that in Acts 1-4, and that's exactly what they did. Now, we, we talk about obedience all the time. It's, it's really a simple, it's, it's a simple thing, and yet there's so many things areas in the Bible where we read and Jesus is giving us an imperative or giving us a command and we don't obey it. We don't obey it. The simple thing sometimes. There is black and white issues in the Bible. Again, going back to God's will, there's things in the Bible where Jesus says, do this, don't do this. The simple things, obedience in our life. You want to see the power of the Holy Spirit move. Obedience has to be something that we take serious. So Jesus tells them, go back to Jerusalem, and they do it. They don't forget the sermon right away, right after they heard it. And they actually did what Jesus told them to do. Even though he was no longer physically present with them, they're obeying him still and doing what he's telling them to do. A Sabbath day journey, that the Mount of Olives was just outside of ancient Jerusalem, and it was a short distance. It was the only kind that was allowed on Sabbath. It says, when they... When they got there, they entered the upper room. Acts 1.15 tells us that there, there were about 120 present. And this included the 11 disciples. 
the 12 minus Judas, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the brother of Jesus, such as James and Judas, and the women who followed Jesus and others. Now, I, we talked about it last week, but it really is amazing that he mentions these brothers. Because we talked about how, the, how Jesus' own family never really seemed supportive of his, his earthly ministry. Now, I, I can't be that hard on him, because if I had a brother that was telling me he's the Messiah, that'd be hard to believe. <laughs> And you talk about creating a weird family dynamic. I had an older brother who was an overachiever, and I had to grow up under him. And so every, every class, he got A's, straight A's his entire life. I don't think he ever got a B, not even in college and seminary. And I had to follow this guy. And so every time they would see Hanson, they would say, well, you're not Jordan Hanson's brother. And I'd just look down and say, boy, are you going to be disappointed. You know, he was an A-plus student. I was... I was happy if I could get a C minus and just pass the class. He never got in trouble. I was always, I lived in detention and I had to just grow up under the shadow of my older brother. Can you imagine, and I hated hearing this. Why can't you be a little more like Jordan? Now my parents didn't do that often, but there were times where I, man, I could just, even if they're not saying it, I know what they want to say. Why can't you be more like Jordan? Can you imagine? Why can't you be like, more like Jesus? Why can't you be more like the savior of the world? I feel for Jesus' brothers. But they, they, were not, they were not followers. They didn't believe in Jesus' message, and here they are. And then it's, it also says Mary and the women. Now, Calvin translates with the women with their wives. It's a reference to the wives of the apostles. Don't overlook that either. Uh, salvation, Christianity, following Jesus. Husbands, listen to me. Take it serious. Lead your family into growing relationships with Jesus. Jesus told them to wait, go to Jerusalem, and pray, and they did it, and they didn't do it alone. They brought their families with them. Husbands, men, we are called to lead our homes and our families. We're called to be leaders in the workplace. It's gonna start in your family. Be a spiritual leader. Teach your children what it means to pray and follow Jesus. Teach them the word of God. Make it the priority. Anytime you can, bring them to prayer meetings. Let them see their father on their knees praying in the morning, praying before they go to bed. Be an example. This is a call that's not just on our life. We're called to bring our family along with us. Don't overlook looked that and they all continued in prayer with one accord and I love this unity that we've not seen up till this point because when we see the disciples in the gospels it's anything but unity they're always fighting they're bickering and and what had changed what what had changed is it a, a different group of people no not necessarily Peter's this he's still the same guy who did not denied Jesus He's still, that's his history. He denied the Lord. Matthew was still a tax collector. Simon was still a zealot. The differences were still there. But the resurrected Jesus in their hearts was greater than any difference. Do you know what breaks my heart so much as a pastor to see all the different, uh, how, how we'll draw a line in the sand and we'll divide over the stupidest, silliest things in the church. We care more about fighting for our opinion than we do the unity of the church. And here's the thing. The power of the resurrection of Jesus should be more important than all those things. So if we've said yes to Jesus, and we're following Jesus, the power of the resurrected Jesus Christ living in our hearts should be able to bring us together, and that should be the focus when we come together. Not on all the differences. They were one 
in one accord. They were united. And they continued with one accord in prayer. And in some translations, it says supplication. Today, I'll go back and forth. Sometimes I'm going to be using uh, the NIV translation. But supplication, I like it. I like the word supplication because it carries a sense of desperation and earnestness in prayer. So already we're seeing three really important steps in making godly decisions. They were obedient, they were in fellowship, and they were in prayer. Those are pretty important. They were in obedience, they were in fellowship, and they were in prayer. Verses 15 through 20, in those days Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp be desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. Peter stands up in the midst of the disciples. Peter's a leader. Peter's a leader. He's a natural leader. And not only is he a natural leader, but we see in the Gospels that Jesus chose him. Jesus chose him to be the leader. Now, I want to stop and just, and just say that God blesses the church with leaders. God calls certain people to be leaders in the church. It's a calling, and God chooses them. Peter's a leader. He's a natural leader. And there's nothing wrong with seeing Peter as leader of the first group of apostles, even as he often was spokesman among the disciples, even during the time of Jesus, we see it. However, listen, the idea that the authority of Peter was supreme and that he handed it down in unbroken succession is unbiblical and wrong. We don't see that anywhere else in the New Testament, or the text never leans to that. But Peter says the scripture had to be fulfilled. And we talked about this last week. Peter believed in, in scripture. Peter believed in scripture. He stands up and says, it's going to be fulfilled. If Jesus said it, if God said it, it's going to happen. And Peter's words show so much wisdom that we really didn't see in Peter before. And I think that's why I like it. What I love about Peter, I, could, I, could, I can connect with Peter and relate to Peter probably more than any other uh, disciple, uh, more than the apostle Paul. Paul just seems like he's got everything together. He's brilliant. He's a genius. Uh, he seems calculated and strategic. And I, I can't always relate to that, but Peter, I can. He just... Peter's just your average, I mean, blue-collared fisherman, not, the, not necessarily the, the sharpest tool in the shed, and yet God uses him over and over and over again. But, but we, don't, we, don't, we see this change in Peter's life, and here's, here's where we see this change, because he's standing on the promises of Scripture. This is something that only wise and mature disciples can see in the aftermath of evil. Think about this. A lot of times when, when bad things happen, it either makes or breaks a Christian. And yet we see this divine maturity at this point in Peter's life. Here's something that, that was just horrible and evil. Judas betrayed Jesus. Judas goes and hangs himself and kills himself. All of this is evil. And yet in the midst of this, Peter can, can see that the scripture had to be fulfilled. It's something that only wise and mature followers of Jesus can see. 
Bible says, falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his entrails gushed out. Matthew 27 says that Judas died by hanging himself. So this passage says, however, that he fell down off a cliff and his bowels burst out. Matthew says that the money Jesus earned for betraying Jesus, he threw back into the temple and the Jewish authorities used it to buy a field. But when Peter retells the story here in Acts, he says that Judas bought a field with 30 pieces of silver. So did Judas buy the field or did he throw the money back? Is it a contradiction? Because I'll I'll tell you, I've been in a lot of debates, and I don't even like debates, but I've been in a lot of debates where this keeps coming to me. The Bible contradicts itself over and over and over and over again. And a lot of times, this is the passage they use. They'll go to this, this story. What is it? It contradicts itself. It's a different story. Well, not necessarily. See, when you hang yourself, if your body stays that way for a long time, the body swells up and eventually the branch broke and he fell down and his stomach ruptured and his gut spilled out. Or maybe the branch overlooked a small cliff. And with the whole money situation, one writer says he threw it back and another says he bought a field with it. What probably happened is that Judas threw the money back at the Jewish authorities and they bought a field with it. And when Peter tells the story in Acts, he just shortened it to say Judas bought the field. Since the money he had earned from selling Jesus was used for that purpose. Now that's just one resolution of a supposed contradiction. But I've heard of these things over and over and over throughout my life. Contradictions. And honestly, there's always a plausible way to resolve them. There's always a plausible way to resolve them. Be a student of God's word. Again, trust God's authority. It was a field of blood, not only because Judas spilled his blood there, but also because the field was purchased with blood money given to the betrayer of Jesus. We talked about this last week where it says, for it is written, Peter's quoting two separate psalms showed why God wanted them to choose another disciple to officially replace Judas. And, and I can't help but notice just the, the reliance on God's word. The reliance on God's word. It wasn't the wisdom of man at work here, but a principle revealed in scripture. Peter wasn't saying this because he had all this wisdom and he knew this was the right thing to do. It was a principle that was revealed in Scripture. And also, this is the first time in the New Testament we read that Peter quoted Scripture. I love to see the change in Peter's life. The Peter that you read about in the Gospels is not the Peter we read about in Acts. Peter is changed. He's growing. He's different. We grow. We're supposed to grow in our spiritual life. We're not supposed to look like we did 10 years ago spiritually. We're supposed to be growing and maturing in our life. So he quotes scripture. He's relying so much on scripture. And then I think it's the NIV. Some translations say this. Let his habitation be desolate. David, who, who was the writer of these psalms that Peter was quoting... He knew what it was like to be betrayed by another person. When David was a fugitive and when he was running from Saul, a man named Doag betrayed him. You read that story in 1 Samuel 21 through 22. And there were a lot of innocent people who died as a result of that betrayal. And David, he he may have penned these very words in reference to to his betrayer. And, And says, let another take his office. When David was betrayed, he desired that the betrayer would be desolate and then another fill the betrayer's office. It wasn't hard to understand that the son of David, Jesus, whom David often prefigured, would desire the same thing. Again, the point of this is that they had this desire for God's will to be fulfilled. 
Because of the principle of the quoted scripture, they decided to replace Judas because they believed it was what Jesus wanted, not because it was what they wanted. Do you see this devotion to God's word? Now, let me just go off a little bit. <laughs> let me just get, speak to your heart here a little bit. All throughout, all throughout scripture, we see this devotion to his word. The most important thing that we can do as a church is to be devoted to God's word. Is to be devoted to God's word. It, we, we on Sunday mornings, I talk about it all the time and I'm going to keep talking about it. We don't preach verse by verse because it's the easy thing to do. We do it because it's God's word. We believe that Jesus is the authority in this church. Not me. He's placed me as an under shepherd. Jesus is the ultimate authority in this church. Jesus is the ultimate leader. He's leading and guiding this church. And how does he operate? How does he exercise that authority in this church? How does he speak to the church? Through his word. So if I'm up here and I'm preaching anything but his word, Jesus isn't the authority of this church. I'm, I think I'm the authority at that point. This is going to be a church that's led by God's word. We take God's word serious. We preach it verse by verse because it's God's spoken word. Do you see that? Man, all throughout the New Testament, these disciples are so committed to God's word. We do things not because we want to. We do things because we want to make sure we're doing what Jesus wants. Verse 21. So one of them who who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he takes us, takes What he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called uh, Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. One of these men must become a witness with us. The disciples were bold enough to make a decision because they knew from God's word that this is what God wanted. The apostles didn't sense an outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon them at this point. That was yet to come. But God didn't leave them without guidance. They knew what to do from the word. Now listen, we obviously believe in a sense of special guidance from the Holy Spirit. I've had moments like that in my own life. I can testify to that. Where I have felt God is telling me this. The Holy Spirit is speaking to me right now. We believe in that, right? We, as we grow in our relationship, the, I believe the Holy Spirit's voice gets, gets louder and louder and louder and becomes more and more clear to us. But any perceived guidance from the Holy Spirit will never disobey God's written word to us. Okay? I've been in churches, I've told this story before, but growing up in Washington State, grew up in uh, the Assemblies of God, Pentecostal churches, and I remember there was this revival taking place and in this particular church, and all of these people would come. They wanted to be a part of this revival. Even people who didn't attend the church were coming uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And I remember one night this preacher got up, and he had pointed to the front row. He said, the Holy Spirit has just revealed something to me. You're going to marry the person to your left, and you guys are going to be missionaries to Africa. The problem is he had his wife sitting on his right. But he took that as God's word and he divorced his wife. He married her. They went to to Africa to fulfill what had been spoken. They ended up getting a divorce. But let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. Any perceived guidance from the Holy Spirit will never disobey God's written word to us. That was not from God. That was not the Holy Spirit speaking. 
So you need to be careful. It says, who have accompanied us at, accompanied us at all time. Whoever replaced Judas must be one who had been with them since John baptized them, who stayed with them during the days of Jesus' earthly ministry, and who saw the resurrected Jesus. Now listen, we find no evidence that these qualifications were discovered either in the scriptures or by special leading of the Holy Spirit. At this point, we might say that they simply used their sanctified common sense. They seem to be logical common sense requirements for the successor to Judas' office as a disciple. And their common sense was sanctified because it came as they were in obedience, in fellowship, in prayer, in the scriptures, and desiring God's will. So that, that's something to note, be, take note of too. Sanctified common sense, all right? It didn't answer everything, but it did narrow it down to two men. And one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. This was the main job of the disciples uh, that would replace Judas. Now that Jesus had ascended to heaven, it was important to have, to have a witness of his resurrection. We also, today, you and I, we can be witnesses of his resurrection. We can do that both by trusting and proclaiming the apostolic testimony and our own testimony that that Jesus has risen from the dead. He lives in us and he works through us. But it's important to understand the biblical standards to recognize an apostle. An apostle had the right to write scripture. One of the standards for, for the right to write scripture is that a person had to be an apostle and had an, an apostle had to see Jesus personally. No one in our day can be an apostle in that sense today, okay? The Bible does use the word in a sense uh, of a missionary. We, we have that today. The word apostle comes from two Greek words, to send, to send and from. So a missionary is sent from the local church with authority to represent the teaching of that church. And in order to understand the qualifications of an apostle who has, who has the right to lay the foundation of the church and write scripture, we need to see those biblical standards. It's, it's critical that we do not use our personal experience to do so. Peter, right here, he set forth the standards for choosing a new apostle, and he's setting the qualifications, and not everyone could be considered for an apostleship. Candidates needed to be with Jesus during his lifetime. That is, they needed to be an eyewitness of Jesus. And some of you are already saying, well, what about Paul? What about Paul, Pastor Justin? Jesus personally appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus. And this encounter revolutionized his life. And Jesus said that he had chosen Saul. In fact, Jesus said, I've chosen him as my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their king and before the people of Israel. Following Paul's conversion, he spent time in Arabia where he was personally taught by Jesus. The other apostles recognized that Jesus himself had appointed their former enemy to be one of them. And the other apostles recognized that Jesus himself had appointed their former, I just said that, I'm sorry. He had, he had appointed himself, he appointed Paul. And as Saul went into Gentile territories, Jesus, who gave Paul his apostleship, authorized him to write over half of the books of the New Testament. Paul identifies the office of apostle to serve his churches. We see it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we see it in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. So clearly the work of apostleship was to lay the foundation of the church in a sense secondary only to that of Christ himself. So requiring eyewitness authority behind their preaching. And after the apostles laid this foundation, the church could be built. Now I want to really 
the Assemblies of God, their official stance on this is we don't use the term apostle anymore. Now, obviously, we believe in an apostolic calling. We believe in that somebody's going to feel an apostolic call to go start a work in, in uh, Africa or India or Asia. And I believe in the apostolic calling even in our church today. I believe somebody could come to me and say, Pastor Justin, I don't see this ministry functioning in the church and God is calling me to do it. That's an apostolic call. We've brought Pastor Stanley and Lydia to, to Fairfield, Ohio to work at New Heights Church because we want them to function in this apostolic call. We need them to start a ministry that's reaching out to all the different people groups that we have present in this community. And we haven't done that right now. We've reached out to the Hispanic population community. We've never reached out to the Nepalese. We've never reached out to the African, uh, some of the African populations. We haven't done that. So we brought them to do that, and they're coming, and they're going to function in that apostolic call. So there's still very much the apostolic call, but the Assemblies of God as a whole has said we don't, we don't use the titles because we, we don't want to confuse people. And I think it's a good stance. If you want, you want to know more about where the Assemblies of God stands on that, you can go to their website, and they actually have an official paper written in response to that. So I would encourage you to look into it. These, so we, we see that um, after their death, all throughout the New Testament, we see all these other positions. There's a succession plan for all of these other teacher, pastor, all of the evangelists. There is a succession plan in the New Testament for that. Nowhere in the text, nowhere in the New Testament do we see a succession plan for the office of apostle. So important to think about. Verse four. Verses 24 through 26. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the heart of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. First of all, I want you to see that they prayed. We're going to talk about praying a lot in the book of Acts. They prayed first, and it was easy to pray because they had already been praying. Acts 1, 14, they had been praying. This was a notable way of doing what Jesus would do. They prayed. I told our, our group on Wednesday, of all the commands that Jesus makes in the New Testament, prayer is up there on the list. Over and over and over, he gives these imperatives, these commands to pray. In fact, we remember that when Jesus chose his disciples, he prayed. That's what Luke 6, 12 through 13 tells us. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. The disciples, now following Jesus, prayed for wisdom to know who the Lord would add to their number. I want you to see something, that praying comes before doing. This is what I shared with our group on Wednesday night. Praying comes before doing. We in America, we love to do. We're a church full of doers. In fact, every single church growth conference or seminar that I've gone to, we talk a whole lot about doing and we don't talk a whole lot about praying. I always talk about our, our history as an Assemblies of God church. We started in 1914 and, and there was this 
move of the Holy Spirit hitting America and all of these pastors who didn't believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit were being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Then they were being kicked out of their denominations because they were being told, we don't do that in this denomination. And you had all of these rogue pastors without a denomination and they started writing each other at first and, and sending out newsletters to encourage each other. And then they decided they would come together in Hot Springs, Arkansas in 1914. And that's how the Assemblies of God formed from that, what was supposed to just be a prayer meeting and, and, and this, this movement formed from that day. Now, one of the things when I went to school at Central Bible College that I got to do a lot, I'm a fan of history. So I would go to the archives. I loved reading the minutes of some of those first uh, Assemblies of God meetings where all the Assemblies of God pastors would come together. We call that general council. We still do this today. All of the Assemblies of God pastors around America will come and they'll gather. This year, it's gonna be in Columbus, coming to the Buckeye State. How about that? But what I am so amazed at, if you read the minutes of those first few general councils, the amount of time they, they spent in prayer was amazing. In fact, I would say they prayed more than they did anything else. They came together and they prayed because they believed that praying comes before doing. See, most of the time we want to come together and we want to strategize about doing. That's what we want to do first. Hey, let's do this, let's do this, and we don't even pray. I've been to those meetings where we don't even, we, we'll just do a two-minute prayer. Lord, bless our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's, hit, let's look at strategy. Let's come up with a plan. There's a difference between what we're doing now and what they were doing a hundred and whatever years ago. We like to do. The American spirit is I can do it. We've got the I can do attitude and we want to get it done. Get busy and get her done. But the text right here, it's screaming, screaming over and over and over. Praying comes before doing. And sometimes we get this order all messed up. We get to the doing before we have done the praying. And when things get all jacked up, well, then we go to the praying. God, I messed this up so bad. Can you come and fix it? Can you help me fix it? A lot of times believers will pray, but usually when they've already made a mess of things. But here the text is saying, before you do anything, pray. Pray. Before you do anything, pray. I think all of us could probably relate to we, we do the doing first before the praying and then we hit our knees praying because we mess things up so much. We can relate to that. But the flip side of that coin is that sometimes people will only pray and not do. I've heard of the famous saying, let go and let God. You guys heard that? Well, context is really important <laughs> with that saying because we don't want to just let go and let God. Sometimes it's, it's good to, to let go in, in your sense of anxiety and worrying and let God do it from there. But don't ever just let go and let God. God wants you to do. Praying and doing goes together. Praying comes first and then you do. There's a mission that God has called us to do. He has a plan for your life. He doesn't want you just to pray for somebody over and over and over. Hey, pray for so-and-so. Your neighbor doesn't know the Lord. Don't worry, I've prayed and i prayed and i prayed. No, at some point, God wants you to do something. At some point, God wants you to open your mouth and share the gospel with that person. I love it that you're praying, but at some point you got, praying comes before doing. They both go together. They've got to go together. We've got to be people that are not just praying. We've got to be people that are doing. But praying comes before working. Praying precedes doing. And I don't know about you, but there's something that really jumps out to me when I read this chapter. We need to be more intentional about praying. We have to, I am so convicted with this and I, I take this responsibility on myself because I'm the pastor of this church. 
Sometimes I think I have failed at making church something it shouldn't be. I need to get the people to realize. We talk about it all the time. Prayer is not just the fuel for the ministry. It is the ministry. But do we live that? Is that a part of the DNA at this church? And if it's not, it comes back to me as your pastor. I have got to make prayer something that is the driving force of this church. We have to be people that pray. Because I believe when we pray and then we go out to do, God's going to show up. Prayer changes things. The disciples, they've spent over a week praying here. Think about it. They're told to wait in Jerusalem. They decide to use the time to pray. They had, they, the disciples in no way looked at prayer as a waste of time. In no way did they look at prayer as a waste of time. Nope, they looked at prayer as invested time. How many of you can say that you look at prayer this way as an invested time? How, I mean, when will we invest our time? We, we invest our time in the things we think are important all the time. I do this all the time. There are certain things that I'm going to invest. I love sports. I absolutely love sports. I am an avid sports fan. There's a big game today, right? Bengals are playing the Bills. And I love sports so much that I'll invest time into my kids. I'm trying to get my boys to like sports a little more, but I will pay money and I will invest hours over the weekend in taking them to camps. Right now, Liam absolutely hates it, but I'm taking him to a camp every Saturday, and he's just learning how to dribble a ball. He wants to play basketball. Dad, I hate, I hate it. All we do is learn how to dribble balls, and the coach screams at us and yells at us, Liam, you got to do it. You got to learn how to play basketball. You got to learn the basics. And I invest time into that because I like it, right? How many of us invest time into praying? How many of, uh, of us invest time into praying? If I value sports like that and I'm willing to invest my time on the weekend and my time off, I'm willing to invest money into him learning basketball, do I do the same thing with his prayer life? Am I investing into my son spiritual habits that he needs to know and learn? Am I doing that? Man, we will invest into the things that are important to us. We will find a way to get what we want. And I'm asking the church, is prayer something that we're willing to invest in? The disciples have been praying for over a week. Some say 11 days they've been praying. And then they cast their lots. And I told you, this was, this was essentially rolling dice or drawing straws for, for an answer. And many people have questioned the method for choosing one, one of the two men. And I, I get it, because it seems that despite all these wonderful spiritual steps, they ended up rolling the dice to pick the winner. It's like they played Yahtzee in the end. It's fair to ask, is this... Is this any way to choose an apostle? But nevertheless, this was a notable reliance on God. This is the last time in scripture that we see it being used. And I believe it's because when the Holy Spirit came, they depended a lot more on the guidance of the Holy Spirit. This is descriptive here. I'm not telling you to go cast lots. Don't take some dice and say, do I marry Bill or do I marry John? I'm going to roll the dice. John, it's you. I'm not telling you to do that. I'm not telling you to do that at all. I'm telling you to rely on the Holy Spirit. But remember, this was very cultural. And I, I've said before, they are probably looking back at Proverbs 16.33 that says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. So the casting of lots may be an imperfect way to discern God's will, but it's, it was much, much better uh, than the methods many Christians use today. That is, to rely on emotions, to rely on circumstances or feelings or carnal desires and whatnot. A lot of times we will make decisions, man, and sometimes I, I think to myself, man, they'd be better off casting a lot at this point because they are just making an emotion or making a decision based on their emotion. It's not coming from the word of God. It's totally based on how they feel right now. But you get the point. 
And the lot fell on Matthias. And some insist that Matthias was, was the wrong choice and they use the use of lots in making the decision wasn't right. And the idea is that God would have eventually chosen Paul if the office had been left vacant. But we must respect the testimony of scriptures. God did not want to leave the office vacant. If it, if, if it were left unfilled, it might seem like Satan got a victory, as if Jesus, Jesus had chose 12, but one came up short, and therefore Satan defeated Jesus' desire for 12 apostles. So even though we read nothing more of Matthias, this is the only time he's ever mentioned in the Bible, we shouldn't assume he was a failure as an apostle. Because really, except for Peter and John, none of the original 12 are mentioned again in Acts 1. Matthias was no more of a failure than Matthew or Andrew or Thomas or any of the other apostles. And as for Paul, we've already determined he was special. He was, he was one born out of a due time, is what 1 Corinthians 15 says. Nowhere in the Bible do we read that Paul objected to the selection of Matthias. Nowhere. Revelation 21, 14 brings... Well, I don't have time to get into that because we're going to be bringing it to close, but... But Matthias was numbered with the 11 disciples, apostles. And no one can fault all the things they did before they cast lots. We've got to believe that all these things put them into the place where God was truly leading them and guiding their decision. And I'm telling you today, we, we won't make many wrong decisions if we did all the things the disciples did before making big decisions. If, if we obey, if we're in unity and fellowship, if we're in prayer, if we're in the scriptures, if we want to do God's will, uh, they used sanctified common sense. They gathered the facts when they were making their decision. The disciples did what Jesus did. The disciples did what they could to rely on God. That's pretty important. It's pretty important. I'm going to call the worship. Well, they're already here. Look at them. They're, they're that good. I am so excited as your pastor going into this next season in, in 2023. We're focusing on, on the book of Acts. And we have made all kinds of changes in the last two and a half years. So many changes. And changes can sometimes be really, really hard. But I'm excited that I love what Pastor Hughes said. I, I remember when he said this when I first got voted in. He said, God's will is good for everyone. God's will is good for everyone. I love that we have this incredible legacy that we get to build on. This incredible rich history and legacy that we're building on. And I love the past, but I'm also so excited for the future. So excited for what God is going to do at New Heights Church here in Fairfield, Ohio. And, and if, I can, if I can just share, if I can just share my heart, Tiffany said it in the announcements. This is our last Wednesday night of prayer. Can I, I plead, I know so many of you are watching online, but I'm gonna, as your pastor, personally invite you to our night of prayer on Wednesday night. This is the last Wednesday we're gonna do it. I'm personally inviting you to come out this Wednesday and to pray with us. And I'm, I, I promise, I'm giving you my commitment as your pastor that I'm gonna be intentional and make more steps to see that prayer becomes more part of our culture here. That we look and function more like the church in the book of Acts because I don't want to be a dead institution. I want to be a movement. I want to be a church when people say, oh yeah, New Heights, oh yeah, that's, that's the church. They're committed to God's word. Oh yeah, my neighbor got saved at that church. Yeah, my cousin got saved at that church. I want to be a church that's seeing the miracles of God. 
on a daily basis. I want to see marriages healed and restored. I want to see sick people healed. I want to see people coming in and being delivered from addictions. I want to see the power of the Holy Spirit moving and operating in our church and in everybody who calls on the name of Jesus because we have a mission and a purpose to do. And I am so excited for the coming year because I believe that we are going to new heights. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you. We worship you. We adore you. We thank you for your scripture, God, that we can look at it as authority in our lives, that we can trust it. It's trustworthy. It's your spoken word into our lives. You give us wisdom into every decision we have to make. You lead us and you guide us. And so, Lord, I pray for every person who's here today physically with us and those who are watching online, that you would put a hunger and a desire in their hearts to know you in a more intimate way. God, that we would prioritize your Bible, your truth in our life, and we would be like Peter. We would be leaders, and we would take a stand, and our stand would be on the promises of your word. We would never back off from your word. We would never be ashamed of the gospel message. And Lord, that we would be people that pray. God, the disciples took it so serious, 11 straight days of praying. I pray that we'd pray more. I pray that you would put a desire in our hearts to pray more. That you would help us be disciplined to pray more, to come together in agreement and pray more. And I pray that we would see more unity as we do it. I pray that we'd see more of the Holy Spirit in our lives, more boldness in our witness and our testimony, that we would see more healings. We would see more things happening again and again and again in fulfillment of your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you that we're not left alone to figure this out, but you have sent your Holy Spirit. Now, Holy Spirit, move in our church. Move in the lives of those who call New Heights their home. Move in a mighty way. Come in and take over, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.